You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, and this is Care Talk with Quick and Quack, coming to you from our beautiful penthouse studio in Florence, Massachusetts. This is Doctors Evan Benjamin and Bill Cutler talking to you about health and health care. We'll be talking to each other with guests, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. We'd love to hear your stories about health and navigating the healthcare system. We've got a great show today. We'll be hearing about hospital care at home. And if time permits later in the show, we may stray a little bit away from uh, the confines of Western medicine. Let's get going. Well, good day, everyone. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, introduce our guest today, our interview, Dr. David Levine. Uh, Dr. Levine is uh, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he's the clinical director uh, for Hospital at Home uh, at uh, Mass General Brigham. He's a core faculty member at Ariadne Labs, where I've gotten to know David, uh, which is our innovation center uh, for healthcare at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard School of Public Health. But David has been a uh, clinician uh, and a health services researcher, and he's been really focusing most lately on transforming uh, inpatient uh, medicine, inpatient care, by creating and, and then studying uh, what we call hospital at home programs. Uh, David is, uh, I think, has a unique perspective. He's both uh, an implementer, has actually worked to actually build these programs, and he is a health services researcher to uh, really study the impact and is this, is this a good approach? So uh, without further ado, uh, Dr. David Levine, welcome to Care Talk with Quick and Quack. Thank you to you both for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. What we're talking about is called Hospital at Home. And uh, David, I'm just going to turn it over to you to let us know when we say that, what, what, what do we mean? What is Hospital at Home? Yeah, Evan, I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people don't quite have the definition right. And when I think of acute hospital care at home or home hospital care or hospital at home, people throw around a lot of those fun acronyms. I'm thinking about patients who are sick enough to be in a hospital, right? They need hospital level care, but instead of getting their care in the hospital, they get their care at home with a specialized team. And so the key here is that it's substitutive care. It's care that normally would have been delivered in a brick and mortar hospital, but instead, thanks to a special team, a home hospital team, we can deliver all the kind of care that you expect at home instead. Uh, you know, I guess maybe if you could just sort of tell us the mechanics of how it works, because I'm, I'm sort of curious about it, because it, it sounds like, on the one hand, uh, a hospital at home sounds great, because we know that hospitals, well, first of all, hospitals can be dangerous places. They're very expensive places. And so the idea of hospital at home sounds like it, it could be attractive. I could think of three ways. Perhaps it might be safer than being in the hospital for some people. Perhaps it might be less expensive, although... I, I wonder about that because it seems like there might be efficiencies of having all the people already there in one place. And then, of course, it has the nice aspect of people getting to be in their home environment. But I'm curious to hear more about the mechanics of how that how that goes. Yeah, Bill, I, I totally agree. And, and even before the mechanics, like you said, we have to have a rationale. 
right? We have to have a reason why we're, we're building something different than the way we've taken care of acutely ill patients for over a century, if not more, right? The modern hospitals has essentially not changed very much in the last hundred years. And so we've got to have a really good reason to build something else. And I think there are a lot of good reasons. You named a few of them already, right? We have a lot of adverse events that happen in our hospitals. We recently published a paper showing that 25% of adults will have some sort of an adverse event when they're hospitalized, and 25% of those adverse events were preventable. That's a lot. And you know, if, if 25% of the time something went wrong when you walked on an airplane, you wouldn't walk on an airplane, but we walk into hospitals all the time. Right. And so there is a big set of adverse events. And, and we think that home hospital ameliorates a lot of or, and or prevents a lot of those adverse events. I think the second you know rationale and, and thing that we look to home hospital to help us solve, it's not going to fix it entirely, um, but is this concept of access, right? You know, you all are out in Western Mass right now. There's not always the greatest access to acute care. Um, I'm over here in Boston right now, and there's still not great access to acute care. There's hundreds of patients right now in Boston hospitals waiting for an acute care bed sitting in an emergency department. They're not getting ideal care. And so the idea is that home hospital can, in a very agile way, reach populations, um, whether they're close or far, and hopefully we'll get to talk about rural home hospital toward toward the end here, yes. but um, we can reach patients in a big way if we build a home hospital setup. And then the last piece that you also touched on that I think is a, an important rationale is the cost of care, right? So we have the most expensive possible care setting in a hospital. You could spend days in the four seasons and not even touch the cost of a night stay in, in one of our hospitals. And we have great evidence from lots of health services research that shows that home hospital care is actually less expensive than care in a traditional brick and mortar hospital. So I think a lot of rationales here. And, and then, you know, to get to the mechanics, though, the way I like to think of it is following a, a patient on, on their journey, right? And so typically, unfortunately, when we're ill and we can't be served in the outpatient setting, we end up going to the emergency department. Right, and that's often where home hospital looks to start. So, if your workup, your your triage, your diagnosis, your treatment, all suggest that you need to be hospitalized, that's often the first place that we can think of home hospital for you. And so, instead of getting admitted up to the tower, up to a bed in a hospital, you can go back to your own bed in your home, and the home hospital team will see you there. You can also start home hospital from off of the general ward. Let's say you've been there for two or three days already and you need more time in the hospital, more acute care days, well, you can get the rest of those days at home instead. And, and so that is another another way where we start to, to at least input patients into home hospital. So so in the, in the setting then of somebody coming into the ER and the decision is made by the emergency room uh, physicians say that, that the patient needs to be admitted, is there somebody then from the home hospital team that would come to evaluate to, to consider whether this is an appropriate admission to the home hospital program instead of the brick and mortar hospital? You got it, Bill. So just the same way that a hospitalist uh, may be expected to admit 
their patient to the general ward or the primary care doc will come to admit their patient to the general ward. We have a home hospital attending who, who comes to evaluate the patient, explains the program to the patient, and then works the patient up, does a history and physical, um, and is then able to take over the care of the patient once they're home. So this is so so exciting. It really is. And so innovative. I'm assuming not all patients are going to be candidates, right? For in the scenario we were just talking about, yep. what what types of patients uh, are, would be candidates for a hospital at home? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, I'll be the first person to say that not everyone should do home hospital when they're when they're hospitalized. Uh, and it's a million dollar question of what is the percentage of patients in America's hospitals today that could be home hospitalized if every hospital had a home hospital program. We can get to that too. But the kind of patient that we typically take care of in home hospital are really general medicine patients, patients who may have an infection like a pneumonia or a, a complicated urinary tract infection or patients that have a heart failure exacerbation or maybe COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation or an asthma exacerbation. The typical stuff that you and I treat on the general medical ward, our bread and butter are the typical patients that we care for in home hospital. Patients who aren't great candidates are folks who need the intensive care unit, right, the ICU. Folks who need to go to surgery in, in the OR, the operating room, um, or folks who need lots of fancy, fancy tests and procedures and things like that, probably better for those kinds of patients to stay in the hospital today. So level of intensity obviously plays into that decision-making. So uh, lots of infusions and multiple tests, uh, it would just be too too difficult uh, to do for all patients. So I know you've been asked this before, but of the patients currently sitting in a, a typical acute medicine bricks-and-mortar hospital, what percent do you think could be hospitalized at home? Yeah, thanks for that one. Definitely been asked before. And... It's a tough question to answer because so much of healthcare is local, right? And I'll give you an example. One of the, the key reasons often that a patient is not eligible that we didn't just mention is where they live. If, if you live 200 miles away from the hospital, it is very unlikely that your home hospital program is going to be able to reach you at home. Maybe they have a connection with some other hospital, home hospital program 200 miles away, but that's unfortunately less likely right now. And so I'll give you an example at, a, at an academic medical center where patients come from very, very far often to get care. We often see that 80% of the patients that show up are ineligible for home hospital just because of where they live. They come from so far away. Compare that to a community hospital, it's the inverse. About 80% of patients are in just by where they live. And so I think that's why I, I give that background because it is so hard to answer your question. because. You know, the average American hospital has such a large variability across the country. But I would say if you are at one of those hospitals that has that nice 80% living close enough to the hospital, and again, close enough is also variable. There are home hospital programs that will go 100 miles you know, to, to see their patients sometimes. Um, we, we can get into those details, but the, the hospital that does have a nice, nice catchment, you know, patients live in a reasonable distance from them, we're talking at least a quarter of those patients, I think, can, can be cared for at home. 
And then the more and more advanced the home hospital build becomes, you're looking at almost one in two or 50% of patients. What are the services and personnel that are going to be there for the for a hospital at home? If I came in today with a, an exacerbation of con- congestive heart failure or something like that, and I, I was going to be discharged home, what, what kind of services would you be able to provide for me? Who would be coming to my house? Uh, yeah. how's, it, how's it going to work? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And I'll I'll just pick on you for a second because you uh, just uh, triggered my pet peeve, which is you're going to be discharged home. We never say that in home hospital because you're not getting discharged. You're just getting right. transferred. Right. You're just getting transferred to the home hospital service. But no worries. Everyone does that. Um, but uh, in any case, so who, who meets you, right? So you've been worked up in the emergency department. You got your IV furosemide, right? Your diuretic to help get rid of some of that water for your heart failure exacerbation. And, and you're going home now. Well, one of your home hospital nurse or your home hospital paramedic is going to be waiting for you at home. Um, potentially, your home hospital attending will be at home as well, unless they evaluated you in the emergency department already that day. Um, and that team will be waiting for you when you arrive. When you get there, they're going to set you up with their continuous monitoring system. Typically, that's a patch that you might wear on your chest. Uh, maybe that's an armband you wear. Maybe it's a watch you wear. Different programs use different monitoring technologies. They're going to set you up with a communication system. They're going to bring their own internet to your home uh, so that they can do video visits with you and have this continuous monitoring running. And they'll they'll make sure that everything is, is squared away the, before the evening and that you can actually rest in your own bed that night. And then they'll show up the next morning. And every home hospital patient, part of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services waiver for for acute hospital care at home, states that everyone must be visited by a nurse or a paramedic at least twice a day. And so every patient is going to get at least two touches. Many patients can get more if they become sick. Maybe a patient becomes septic. Maybe a patient needs more care. You may have additional visits for those patients. But every patient is at least going to have two touches from from their home hospital nurse or paramedic and then one daily touch from their home hospital physician or advanced practice provider. And that physician or APP can see you either in your home or by video, whatever is appropriate for your condition. Okay, so if I was in the hospital and... um during the middle of the night, if I was feeling worse in some way, I would reach over and hit the call button and a nurse who's who's waiting there around the clock would come in to see me. So what happens at home if I'm if they set me all up, things are going going pretty good, and then all of a sudden about midnight, I'm just not quite feeling great and I'd yeah. like to sort of talk to somebody. What happens then? Exactly. Yep. Great question. And so home hospital programs have to have a twenty four seven urgent response team. And so what that looks like for most home hospital programs is, remember I told you we brought that communication system. Some home hospital programs actually bring a telephone for patients. Others bring a tablet. Others have a little call button that you press that you we put on your wrist. Some of it's a pendant. So you press that call button, right? And you're immediately sent to a central command center often where you speak with your home hospital team nurse, for example. You get your triage she finds out or he finds out that you're short of breath. Maybe you have fluid in your lungs again, right? You need more furosemide, for example. That person is going to be able to dispatch an urgent visit to your home. Typically, that's what we call a mobile integrated health paramedic. This is a really special and fantastic kind of training for paramedics. This is not a 911 EMS paramedic. These are folks who have received hundreds of additional hours of training beyond their paramedic training in order to work in lots of different environments 
for example, home hospital environments. And so that urgent response is going to be dispatched to your home at midnight, at two in the morning. It's got to be a 24-7 service, just like the hospital. And those folks are then going to be able to give you that IV medication you need. They're going to be able to call in your doctor uh, to, to get any orders that they may need um, and be able to stabilize you, hopefully, uh, in your home. Okay, so so when I, when I push that call button and, and sort of get the triage person there, they're going to talk to me. I'm going to tell them what my concerns are. They're going to be able to look at some data, I assume, because I've got this monitor on. They'll be able to, to check, on, check on my vital signs. They, they, <clears throat> they can see what my heart rhythm is. They can see my oxygen level and put that together with what I'm telling them. And then they decide whether they need to send somebody out to see me right then or if it can wait till the morning. You got it. Yep. They can basically do everything except physically touch you, right? They can see you. They can get all of your data. And then they can make a triage decision based on the data available to them, whether or not you need to be seen right then and there. Or like you mentioned, you can uh, just roll over and, and have a good night's sleep. When the paramedic comes, that, that he or she could, could presumably obtain some blood tests if that was needed uh, at that point, and, and we'd have yeah. that information for the morning? Well, actually, you'd have that information right then okay. and there, Bill. Yeah. So many programs uh, carry point-of-care blood uh, systems. And so, for example, our team in Boston uh, carries a blood meter where I can get a basic metabolic panel and an H&H, &H, a hemoglobin hematocrit, faster than on any hospital floor. Uh, two, two minutes in the home, I can get a, a good set of labs uh, yeah. in the home yeah. uh, quite quickly. lab right there. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. David, this has been a fantastic introduction to this. I think we'll take a break here. When we come back, we'll talk more about what do we know uh, about these, these programs. Sounds great, Evan. Thanks. I'm sitting in the railway station Got a ticket for my destination mm -hmm. On a tour of one night stands My suitcase and guitar in hand And every stop is neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home Where my thoughts escaping Home Where my music's playing Home Where my love lies waiting silently for me Every day is an endless stream Of cigarettes and magazines And each town looks the same to me The movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see Reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home Where my thoughts escaping Home Where my music's playing Home Where my love lies waiting silently Tonight I'll sing my songs again I'll play the game and pretend mm -hmm. But all my words come back to me In shades of mediocrity Like emptiness and harmony I need someone to comfort me Homeward bound I wish I was homeward bound where my thoughts escaping home Where my music's playing home Where my love lies waiting silently for me 
silently for me All right, we are back here with Quick and Quack, and we are interviewing today Dr. David Levine, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Clinical Director for Hospital at Home at Mass General Brigham. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us, and it was great to get a little introduction to what is Hospital at Home and some of the mechanics and how it works and what kind of patients are candidates for this. Uh, it's a very exciting innovation. So. This has been around for a little while now. Uh, we've uh, heard about it uh, in some uh, other countries. There's some international experience from it. There's mm -hmm. been some experiences here in the United States. Well, tell, just sort of sum up for us, like how, how prevalent is hospital at home? And what are the current uh, trends? How many, how many patients do you think are being impacted by this? How many programs are there uh, currently in, uh, in our current American medicine? Yeah, if it's all right, Evan, I'll, I'll also step back and, and just for a historical perspective internationally, because America is late to the game for this, honestly. Uh, home hospital has been going on for over 40 years globally. And really places like Australia and Spain and England uh, and France stand out as a lot of the, the real winners here um, in this care model. And I'll give you an example. You asked how prevalent is it? So guess how many hospitals of the five major hospitals in Barcelona have a home hospital program. You put it that way, I'm going to guess five. You got it, Bill. <laughs> five. And so Bill's good on game because, shows. <laughs> Bill, I, I appreciate that you've been listening very well. So it is, it is the default option at these hospitals. That is what's crucial, right? So Spain has invested in a massive way in the infrastructure and regulatory and financial aspects of home hospital for years and years, and it's paid off, right? It is extraordinary. You have enormous home hospital programs in all of the city's major hospitals. We don't have anything like that in the United States yet. So we can zoom in, you know, about a decade ago, there were a handful of home hospital programs operating. The Veterans Administration, the VA, has actually been a leader in home hospital care for years. Um, right now, I believe the most up-to-date count is about 13 active programs across the country um, are, are currently taking care of veterans who are acutely ill, but in their home instead. And so we have seen a smattering of programs across the country, oftentimes because of the financial regulations. Unfortunately, there has been no payment mechanism for home hospital care prior to 2020. And so the only place you saw home hospital living was in places like the VA with a global budget that can control their budget or in ACOs, for example, where again, there's shared risk and people can agree to, to certain care models and pay for them uh, out of uh, kind of out of their contracts. So those are accountable care organizations where, where groups of, of, of physicians, practitioners have gotten together and they're, they're managing the care of a population. And they're, they're accepting the, the risk and, and, and the payment. Yeah. So David, what happened in 2020? So my dream came true in 2020, Evan. <laughs> so in 2020, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, issued the Acute Hospital Care at Home Waiver. And so this was obviously in response to the COVID pandemic and the extraordinary crush and access issues you know, that were occurring for hospitals. And 
all of a sudden, in November of 2020, a payment mechanism started and a regulatory mechanism started for acute hospital care at home, whereby CMS said that any hospital can apply for permission to deliver home hospital care. And they would interview that hospital, they would make sure that hospital was up to spec, and if they were, they would pay for a hospitalization at home at the same rate that they would pay for a brick and mortar hospitalization. And so you can imagine this is now the first time where there's a payment mechanism, there's a regulatory mechanism behind it, and this has helped catapult home hospital care in a big way in the United States, such that we went from six programs that were be started on in November of 2020 to now over 300 hospitals with an approved waiver. And we just published a paper last week, actually, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, showing that thousands and thousands of patients have been cared for um, just in the last year under this waiver um, at many, many hospitals across the country. Uh, and I think it's it was a really exciting moment, and this is hopefully going to create the trend that we'd like to see that Boston can become Barcelona, where all hospitals in Boston will have a home hospital program. Yeah. So 300 hospitals. We we have over 5,000 hospitals in the United States. So it's still it's still small, and it's still therefore new here in the United States. Uh, so very interesting to see the international experiences and and others. Um, and we'll we know that uh, the, these outcomes are. Uh, changing we're learning about them i just wanted to pause here and say you know in in your paper you you did talk about some of those outcomes i'd love to hear uh maybe how you would summarize that particularly around patient experience and what patients are mm -hmm. and then of course on the impact of any other outcomes or, or costs that we know of yeah so i'll just go back because you know you burst my bubble there calling this so small evan um <laughs> and and you're absolutely right but what i you're you're absolutely right but what i do want to say that i think is important right is it takes a really long time for innovations to diffuse into systems right and so there's this diffusion of innovation curve i, I certainly did not invent this concept right and depending on exactly how we measure the percentage of hospitals currently operating home hospital programs we're just about at the early adopters phase which is exciting, right? We, we weren't even anywhere near that uh, prior to 2020. And this is with a pandemic, this is with a temporary waiver in place, right? So lots of hospitals have chosen to jump into this care model without any permanence, right? I'd, I'd like to see Bill go to his CFO at his hospital and say, hey, you know, we should start a home hospital program, um, but I'm not actually sure if anyone's gonna pay for it until next after next year. And the CFO is gonna look at you like, no way, I'm not gonna do that. Absolutely. And so despite that kind of temporary nature, we're still seeing hospitals wanna deliver this care. And it's because of the outcomes, which I, I can now I can now go to after I kind of backtrack there on you a little. That's great. All right. How's how's it how's it how are the outcomes coming? Yeah, and so we we did just publish this national paper where we looked at the claims data uh, for the last year's worth of acute hospital care at home waiver patients. And again, the, I, I do want to just say, that first off, there, there is not a comparison in this paper. It is just a descriptive analysis. I can go to the randomized controlled trial data we have in a minute, but what we were able to show among thousands and thousands of patients was that um, almost nobody died during their home hospital care. Very, very few patients, you know, 2.3% of patients died within 30 days of their of their home hospital care. 
very, very few patients needed to go back to the hospital during their home hospital care. We call that an escalation, right? We have to escalate their care back to the hospital. About 7% of patients had to, had to have that happen. And about 16% of patients were readmitted to the hospital within 30 days. And so the other really, I think, important piece about this was that these were very chronically complex, ill patients who were quite acutely ill. You know, there are metrics for how we measure the acuity of a hospitalization, and these patients were quite, quite acute. And these patients had a lot of comorbidities or other medical problems. And so, for example, large percentage of them had dementia. Um, a large percentage of them had heart failure and COPD. Um, and so these were complex folks uh, getting care. You know, you could decide whether you think those numbers sound good or not uh, on a national level. We also have randomized control trials at single sites that we've done where we've literally, you know, sat in the emergency department and opened an envelope and said, Bill, you're going to, to stay in the hospital. And then we said, Evan, you're going home just randomly. Right. Just and so we, we create a control group that stays in the hospital and then we create a home hospital intervention group. And when we do studies like that, and our group was one of the first to do in the United States, we're we're able to really actually show large decreases in things like 30-day readmission. We're able to show decreases in cost, and we're even able to show increases in patient movement. Right? What do patients do when they're stuck in the hospital? They lie in bed, they don't move. What do patients do when they're at home trying to get over their pneumonia? They move a lot more. Uh, and so because of that patch that I mentioned that we put on patients, we were able to actually objectively show that patients were lying down less when they were at home sure. and were moving more when they were at home. Yeah, it makes so much sense. You know, you're, you're sick at home. And yes, you're sick, but it's your home. You're getting up. You're going to, maybe I want to get a snack in the refrigerator. You're moving around. You're much more comfortable. Uh, and what we see in the hospital, of course, the, the rate of, uh, you know, weakness that develops among people. You, even, even your data that you published last week, you know, I was a hospital administrator for many years. That, those are really good data. Uh, you know, that readmission rate, uh, you know, is... It's just wonderful compared to uh, acutely hospitalized uh, patients who really it turned in a, a almost a revolving door now for some of our uh, typical chronic conditions like heart failure and COPD. Uh, so really exciting to see that and that we're starting to get some data on, on this experience. Yeah, I mean, I think we do need to be cautious about that because there wasn't a control group and, and we are so, you know, we are ruling out some of the sickest patients who, uh, getting hospitalized here coming into this program, but, but it certainly does sound encouraging. I, I agree with you. you know, that, that's why I'm the first to say there wasn't, wasn't a control group in our national study. Um, and at the same time, I, I think did show that we, we are actually able to provide a pretty high level of, of hospital-level care at home, right? M many infusions, uh, pretty much everything shy of, a, of intensive care, right? ICU-level care. And, and so I think the numbers did did bear that out when, when we looked yeah. at kind of the kinds of patients and acuity of care that was being delivered. How, do, how, does, how does the staffing work for, for this program? Because, I mean, that's going to be key in the cost. I mean, you're getting reimbursed now. But I'm sort of remembering back to my mm -hmm. days of working as a hospitalist where I would be responsible for a, a number of inpatients on the floor. I might be the, 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 the one who's doing the overnight shift. And I could get three or four calls at the same time about patients who need some attention. And I'll talk to the nurse and I'll figure out who to go see first. And I might go see one. I might go see another one and may come back to the first one again. And I might be bouncing around the hospital sort of, you know, looking at these patients uh, who need some attention. 
and obviously that's harder to do when the patients are miles apart uh, at home. So how, how does that impact the, the personnel who have to be available for the program? Great question. And, and oftentimes it does require a, a slightly new mindset and slightly new skill set among our clinicians, right? You mentioned, oh, I bounced back and forth among four patients during my nocturnist shift. Well, I bet I can bounce faster on four video calls than you can bounce between rooms. <laughs> and, and you might say, but video calls aren't as good as going to the bedside. And you'd probably be right for certain things. Uh, but turns out the vast majority of things, we can actually be very helpful when we have, you know, continuous vitals, we are able to, um, you know, do a video visit with patients, you know, for example, at night and can usually troubleshoot a lot of issues. And when we can't, we have a team that we can send out uh, in order to do that. The, the personnel, though, that you mentioned, you know, we do have the issue of windshield time, right? We do want to make sure that windshield time is as small as possible because we want our clinicians in front of our patients, not in front of their dashboards driving around town. And so I think it is important to make sure that we are optimizing logistics at all times, right? And so we're creating microgeographies for our nurses to, to visit their patients as quickly as possible around town. We're making sure that we're optimizing the video visits we're doing versus the in-home visits we're doing as physicians and advanced practice providers and making sure to essentially use the technology to its absolute uh, fullest extent. Right. So this, it, may, this may be a little bit sort of uh, sort of getting ahead of ourselves here, but if as hospital at home becomes more established and we start having more experience with it, do you think it's possible that that's going to alter the way we look at hospital in the hospital and, and, and you know what patients need when, when they're in the hospital? Might it, might, it change, might it have an impact on that care? perhaps make it more efficient or 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 100% bill 100% we have over and over been asked to bring the technologies that we've perfected at home into the hospital i i think we will definitely be able to show that a lot of the things we use and do are actually uh better done at home and we can improve a lot of our hospital care as well i'll give you an example we showed in our randomized controlled trial that we do a lot less lab testing at home than in the hospital. It's the same pneumonia, it's the same antibiotics, but we're doing less lab testing. Why is that? Um, and we know that there is a massive culture of over-testing in hospitals. And so when you change the site of care, all of a sudden you can change people's behavior. Uh, maybe sorry, it's because yeah. eh, it's a little harder to do the lab test or maybe it's because uh, I don't want to have to drive the blood sample somewhere or maybe it's because yeah. I see how well the patient is doing in their living room today. I, I don't need a blood test to tell me that their white blood cell count, which is a measure of inflammation, has come down. And so uh, we we know and we that we need to bring those practices back to the hospital uh, to improve care in the brick and mortar. Yeah. Over as well. overutilization is so classic in the traditional inpatient mm -hmm. admission. You know the, the 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 daily blood draws, right? It's just it's just a ritual, right? Uh, residents they're ordered, they're ordered the night before. They're ordered the night, or sometimes they're ordered at the beginning of admission, and they're they're the order is, you know daily labs, you know, a, recurring. A, yeah, exactly. And so whether you need it or not, you're getting a blood. So I love what you're doing is you're, you're, you're naturally changing the environment. You're asking the question, do I really need this? And overall right. utilization should fall.
saying about this experience? Great question. We've done a lot of research, qualitative research on patient experience. We've done some quantitative research on patient experience as well, but our qualitative research is really the richest. And so we've interviewed patients and their families about their experience, both in the home hospital setting, as well as in the brick and mortar uh, hospital setting. And some of the takeaways are, are pretty extraordinary. People really talk about their locus of control being intact when they're in their home, right? We, we take away people's locus of control. We take away pretty much any of their opportunity uh, to, to do what they want when, when they're in the hospital. We tell them when they go to the bathroom in the hospital, where they go to the bathroom. We tell them when to eat, um, how to eat, what position to be in when eating. Um, and, and all those things come back to you when you're in your home. It's, it's your turf. And we're really professional guests, uh, you know, of, of you when we're taking care of you. And so locus of control is a huge piece that, that patients talk about. They also talk about just the comfort of being at home, being with their pets, being with their family. It's a big deal. Patients also talk about uh, feeling cared for um, and feeling monitored and observed uh, while they're in their home uh, can be very reassuring to folks. I think some of the some of the question marks that we're still studying um, is an area that I, I call and others call caregiver burden. Well, what happens to the family when the patient goes home, right? Do they have to take on all this extra burden to help that patient do well at home while they're home hospitalized? Um, and we've studied this too. We've actually interviewed caregivers um, and given them what are called caregiver burden surveys. Uh, and, and it turns out that the, you know, we're, still, we're still doing more research on this, but so far what it looks like is that patients in the hospital, the, the caregivers of those patients are quite burdened, actually. Even though there's nursing there 24-7, even though there's uh, techs and care assistants that can help, it's quite burdensome to support a loved one in the hospital. And caregiver burden at home is also substantial. Um, and it's probably actually quite similar. And what we're finding is it might be different different for different reasons. Uh, and so I'll give you an example, right? If you have to go to your loved one in the hospital, maybe you're an older adult, you don't, you don't really like driving, but you end up driving maybe 20 minutes to the hospital in terrible Boston traffic, for example, you, you end up paying way too much that you, that you then you can afford for parking. You end up getting lost on the way to your loved one's uh, room. You miss the rounding team. No one will come back to talk to you about what the care plan is all day. You have to go buy really tough cafeteria food that you don't have money for and don't really want to eat. You're sitting in a two-bedded room, catching a cold from the person on the other side of the curtain while you're trying to support your loved one. And then it's so late at night, you have to drive home in the dark, which you don't like doing, and you're exhausted and you feel like you haven't done anything to support your loved one. And so that's quite burdensome. Um, and it's quite stressful. And then you have to wake up the next day and do it all over again. You also have to be there to make sure that somebody doesn't come into the wrong room to do something for your loved one that they don't need. Or... Right. Yeah. No. And, and compare that to a team that comes to you, you, uh, you know, on your, your turf, on your time, 
you you are in your home. Uh, you get to take care of uh, you know your loved one as you'd like, and it's a totally different experience. And that that was reflected. That said, it, it can still be burdensome for people to to have you know sick loved ones in sure. their homes. And so home hospital programs have actually innovated around this. So for example. Our program at Mass General Brigham will put an on-demand home health aid in your home up to 24 hours a day to unburden the caregivers and kind of improve the care situation uh, for someone so that they can receive home hospital care. We will bring food to your home if if you prefer that uh, in order to, again, provide sustenance as well as to unburden any sort of caregivers who may have to cook for you. And so I think there's a lot more research to do here and more to learn. Um, but what we're seeing is that qualitatively patients are very happy to be at home. And for the most part, their their family and their, their familial caregivers are also quite happy. That's fantastic. Uh, David, this has been such a good interview. I want to ask one more question before we go. And this is really about some of the research that you're doing and a little bit of your imagination. If we look at where this home hospital care model is going, what do you think will happen over the next five to 10 to 10 years? What, you know, maybe new patients that we can uh, have in the program, new technologies. Uh, what do you think the future gonna be? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball, Evan, but I'll, I'll, make, a, I'll make a few predictions or comments. One is a little bit of a call to action for your listeners. If they feel like this is a care model that's important to them, maybe important for one of their family members, maybe for their patients, there's a big opportunity. The waiver that, that we talked about earlier in the show is going to end December 2024 without an act of Congress. So all of the progress that we've made since my dream came true in November 2020 can completely fall off a cliff. We don't want that to happen. And so believe it or not, you all can talk to your senators, your Congress people, and make a big impact and say the acute hospital care at home waiver, that's something that should be continued in the United States. It's for our patients, it's for our loved ones, it's it's for our country, honestly. And we can make a big impact to, to have Congress extend or even make permanent the, the acute hospital care at home waiver. So that's the first thing. I, I truly believe that it will be extended, if not made permanent, before December of 2024. Uh, but we need a lot of help from from folks who are listening and and from Quick and Quack and and others <laughs> to uh, to really move it forward. I think the other thing that we're going to see is a lot of new technology and a lot of new clinical care pathways starting. So, for example, we're we're building all sorts of surgical pathways right now for home hospital, where you receive your surgery, you're in the PACU, and as as long as everything checks out in the PACU, you go home whereas you would have normally stayed in the hospital for days recovering from your surgery. We're also going to start using different sorts of logistics technology. So today in the uh, Boston Business Journal, there's an article about how our team is going to start using medical drones to deliver on-demand medical equipment uh, to patients. So think of the patient who needs a different kind of antibiotic in their home and they live many miles away in Boston traffic or outside of Northampton, well, if you just snap your fingers and a drone will have that new antibiotic to the patient's home in no time. And so wow. <laughs> I think we're going to be seeing a lot of, a lot of changes um, in how we really conceptualize the delivery of, of, of home hospital care 
uh, in in the future. It sounds really exciting. It sounds like some great innovations going on. Well, I just want to thank you again, Dr. David Levine from uh, Harvard Medical School and Mass General Brigham. It's been such a pleasure, uh, and we really want to wish you good luck. Uh, I'd love to, you know, in a year or so, bring you back, David, and we'll see if some of your predictions have come true and see what new technologies have been added and how the home hospital care model is evolving. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Evan Bill, thank you. Well, I feel so breakup. I want to go home. Now hoist up the young sails. See how the main sail sets. Go for the captain a shot. Let me go home. Let me go home. I want to go home. All right, that's the uh, Kingston Trio with the John B. Sales. And uh, earlier in the show, we heard from the Talking Heads with their song called Home. We heard from Simon and Garfunkel with Homeward Bound. And Evan, Great it's music. just you and me now. So that was a very interesting interview with some really interesting innovations. What do you think of all that? Well, first of all, Bill, great music. I, I love uh, the choices that we had this week. Uh, some of my favorite uh, artists there. Uh, and I really want to thank Dr. David Levine uh, for joining us uh, and really fascinating talk about this new idea of home hospital. Uh, and just the very idea of sometimes when I tell my uh, physician colleagues about this, they, start, they scratch their heads a little bit. It's like, what? We're going to hospitalize people in their homes? Well, I think David did a really nice job sort of talking about that we, something we can do this and other countries have done this. Uh, David mentioned that, you know, in Spain, nearly every hospital has a hospital at home program. Uh, Australia, about 10% of the hospitalizations there are now done uh, in, the, in the home. Uh, the, the research that uh, David has done and others have done have, are, are actually showing that, you know, the outcomes are just as good as being in the hospital and, and the patient experience is, is, is actually far better. Uh, and it's doing this at a fraction of the cost and uh, you know lower readmission rates he, he talked about. So boy, really interesting idea and uh, you know maybe this could uh, take off here. It hasn't yet. Yeah, so, so great innovation, but uh, I think David also mentioned some of the barriers that we're, that we're seeing that may that, that are keeping it from taking off right at this point. Yeah, well he, yeah, he talked about this that Medicare at the beginning of the pandemic created a waiver so that hospitals could actually build these programs. The, the fear was with all the COVID patients, we, we're going to need to uh, over, going to need some more beds. And so let's have some beds at home. And now it's been shown to be so successful. And David's telling us that, you know, can, can Medicare continue paying for this? And can other uh, private insurance companies recognize that this is a good uh, program and to continue to pay for it? So one is the payment model. We have to have uh, the, the payment so that these programs can exist. And the other, you know, like I said, Bill, when we talk to our friends about this idea, you know, physicians first scratch their head and just having physicians accept this as, as a model uh, is, is another barrier. Well, you know, it's interesting. He's mentioned physicians accepting it. And 
you know, this is maybe diverging a little bit, but but when I think back on the course of my career, um, when I first made the decision to go to medical school, I decided first to become an EMT to sort of get a sense of working in the healthcare system. And as an EMT, I would go to people's homes where people were very sick, and we'd put them on a stretcher, bring them to the hospital, and uh, get them into the emergency room where they may get admitted to the hospital. And um, one of the things I really liked about that was going into people's homes, sort of seeing what was happening there, and there were things that I could do in that role of, you know, looking in the medicine cabinet to see what medicines they took, get, uh, getting a sense of, 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 uh, of, of how they were living to see, you know, were these people able to cook for themselves and various other things. And, and the emergency room doctors that I really liked were often very interested to hear that stuff and, and to sort of say, you know, this is, imp- this is important information that you're able to bring about what's happening in this person's life because when they come to the hospital, they get separated from that. And so for me, this is so exciting to think like we're, we're, we're now going to be sending the, that, that ambulance transportation the other way of, of, of having people uh, get into that home environment and allow the, the, the hospital personnel to be, to be working in that environment to better understand how this care fits in with this person's life. It's just, uh, to me, it's a, yeah, a really fascinating thing. You know, it's so interesting. So, th- yeah, the, the model actually uses EMTs uh, to actually go into the home to care for patients in the home. And I think uh, two things come to mind. One is interesting that we're in the home and we can assess it. And also, you know, David mentioned that not all homes and not all patients will be candidates. And if you, I'm sure you recall in some of the homes you were in, Bill, uh, you know, some homes have support and are set up and probably could care for a sick family member and others, uh, you know, a little, not, not as much. Right. You know, and, and I think one of the things that, um, you know, we, we didn't really talk about in his interview, although I did read this in one of his studies that, that they looked at, at, um, what some of the factors were that prompted people to choose to do uh, a hospital at home versus being in the hospital and and so the the implication that I got from that is that is that the way this is set up now you know in the hospital they decide are you appropriate to to get hospital at home but I think that they also have patient choice where it's offered to somebody and and the patient could say yeah I'd love to have you know have this care at home or the patient could say no you know I think I'd rather be in the hospital um, I, I mean I wonder if this model becomes more widespread you know if it's if it if it could be forced on people and, and you know and what could happen with that if um, because uh, that might not get so much recept- receptiveness I guess. yeah I, I agree I, I think you know implementing and standing up one of these hospital at home programs, you know, it requires a lot of logistical work. It, it, David mentioned the, the technology, but also involves, you know, good decision making, shared decision making with patients uh, so that they know what they're getting. He talked about the burden on caregivers. It seems like it would go up and, and not all patients feel comfortable having their family members helping and being caregivers in a home hospital environment. So. I think it's not for everyone. It's good for selected patients, but if the program is set up well with, uh, you know, good technology uh, and good decision making, uh, that you can hospitalize many patients in their home. Uh, one thing that David did mention, which I thought was fascinating, is uh, when I we, I we talked about the 
potential future of doing care in the home. Uh, he talked about post-op patients, taking surgery patients uh, directly from the, you know, after surgery and doing their post-op care at home, uh, you know, uh, doing uh, nursing home at home. Uh, we're starting to see some experiments uh, in that. And, and even uh, I've heard about uh, some uh, ideas and experiments of doing uh, homelessness, people who are experiencing homelessness and having them cared for in shelters who would otherwise require a hospitalization. So I think there is some interesting potential with this home hospital model. It sounds like tremendous amount of potential. And uh, I do like the idea of bringing David back in a year or so uh, to sort of see where 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 things are at with this program, how they how they've progressed. Um, so, Evan, it looks like we've we've kind of used up the whole hour here. I thought we were going to get a chance to talk about shamanism or some other things like that, but we're going to have to save that for for a future show. But th- this is this has been a good one. Well, that wraps up another fantastic episode. You've been listening to Care Talk with Quick and Quack on WXOJLP. As always, our email, caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. You can catch our show on WXOJLP Northampton. If you're in the greater Northampton area, you can tune in on the radio at 103.3 FM. You can also find it on the web at valleyfreeradio.org. Or you can tune in to the podcast. While there are many Care Talk podcasts out there, we are the only one with Quick and Quack. This show would not be possible without the staff and facility here at WXOJLP Northampton. You can learn more about WXOJLP at valleyfreeradio.org. And please visit that donate button. We also have a very robust staff here at Care Talk with Quick and Quack who will always have our back. We've got our malpractice attorney, Heidi Evidence. <laughs> we have our director of efficiency, Artie Dunn. And our audio engineer, Kent Erdat. <laughs> I love that. Uh, we have our director of telephonic complaints, Don Answer. All right. And, and don't forget our czar of political correctness, Diddy Sadat. In addition, we sometimes need some clinical support here. We have a fantastic clinical consulting staff. How about our, from gastroenterology, Isabel E. Tender. Or from surgery, Anita Cut. Anita Cut. Uh, from urology, Lee King. And homeopathy, Les Ismore. That's Dr. Dr. Les Ismore. Uh, psychiatry, Frida Mind. And our chief diagnostic consultant for those very difficult clinical situations, Hanno Idear. Thank you all for joining us once again on Care Talk with Quick and Quack. And we'll see you all and hear you all next week. Thanks for listening.